This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 39, recorded on May 28, 2014. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here in the room with my co-host, Robin Dennis. Welcome, Robin. Thanks. It's a wonderful day to be here. It is. And uh, finally, summer has arrived to mid-Ohio. Uh, and also, two co-hosts on Skype connecting with us. First, Lionel Chow from Cincinnati Children's. Welcome, Lionel. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's great to have you back on board. And the fourth co-host today is Andy Kolb from Nemours Children's Hospital in uh, Delaware. Welcome. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, thanks for being on again. You know, we've got some surprises for our audience. It's been a little while since we've done a recording. Uh, we actually did one that didn't work out well in terms of the technology, so so we bailed on that one. But in the meantime, two of our faculty from here went to the recent neuroblastoma meeting in Germany and ended up sitting down with about six different guests, I think, luminaries in the field, Dr. Shimada himself and several others, and did a podcast kind of on their own initiative, and they're, they're mixing the soundtracks right now. And so we're going to launch those or post those in the coming weeks as each separate episode's all about the history and, and exciting developments in the neuroblastoma world. So that's, that's going to be a lot of fun. So those will be two new co-hosts that are going to be joining us from time to time, Dr. Neelay Shaw and Dr. Kerry Streeby. But today we're here not with any particular guests to interview for a change. We're going back to one of our original formats, which was more of a journal club to discuss some interesting papers and hopefully generate some either controversy or or some you know interesting discussion. And Rob is going to present those first. Before she does, I have to apologize for our listening to our listening audience, I've been remiss a bit. We have received a couple of emails over the last few months, believe it or not. And I always ask people to send in emails, and then if I'm not responding, that's not good. So actually, I wanted to um, read them real quick. And if anybody has, if any of the four of us have any comments, we can comment on them. The first one relates uh, to episode 15, which was a while ago. I think it was recorded on September 28th of 2011. It was on microRNAs and hereditary cancer. For those who um, want to go back and listen to it, but it was from someone named Rita, and I won't be giving any any last names. But Rita is a student at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC. I actually worked there for a summer because I grew up in Columbia, right outside of Baltimore, and did a worked in a lab at UMBC for a summer uh, in high school. But um, she said, I was interested in seeing if there was a relationship between the different types of pleuropulmonary blastoma. So we had talked in that episode about types 1, 2, and 3. I can't remember if, I know that was before Robin's time. I can't remember if it was before Andy or, or Lionel's time. But um, I know Jim Geller was on that episode. Uh, and anyway, it was the difference between PPB types 1, 2, and 3 in children versus adults. And she asked, if so, was there evidence that um, showed a quicker escalation between the different types in children versus adults and in patients who had a DICER-1 mutation inherited uh, versus patients without the DICER-1 mutations. Um, I actually sent this around to some of the co-hosts at the time back then. I didn't get a response. So I, I think people just don't know. This is sort of an, a question about the biology of, 
of these um, adults versus kids. Do you guys, any of you guys know the answers to that, those questions? Lionel, any clue? I, I don't know the answer to that question, but uh, our guest who uh, led that session, Dr. Catherine Wickenheiser Brokamp, would be one of the world experts, and we could definitely, I don't know, I'm not sure if you bounced the email to her or not, but uh, she would be the, the, the authority on the subject, I think. You know what, why don't we bounce that to her, and we'll get back to if there is an answer. If she doesn't hear from us, um, it's safe to say that Catherine didn't know either. Um, okay. So um, I'll email it to Catherine and also to you, Lionel, since you're there with her down in Cincinnati. The second one came in a little more recently, February 28th, 2004. It was from Amanda. It says, hello, I just finished listening to your episode 36 with Kathleen Neville, and I had a set of questions that I would love for some more information on with possible, and I think that we'll be able to answer these pretty quickly. She says, I am currently working on a research project slash speech concerning the barriers to progress in cancer research or pediatric cancer research, and this was a very timely find. Uh, first, how does the lack of drugs with FDA-approved indications for children affect how oncologists are able to treat their pediatric patients? So let's go with that one first. Andy, you're an actively practicing person in the field. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I, I think in, in many instances there are active drugs that, uh, you know, I think in AML a great example is, is azacitidine uh, or a drug like uh, varinostat, which has shown some efficacy in adults. Uh, in a relapse setting where you have few other options to offer the patient, that may be the best therapy. And some insurance companies won't pay for it because we don't have pediatric-specific data. Even though we have phase one data for safety, we have some phase two data for some of these drugs. We don't have a pediatric-specific uh, indication. What about you, Lionel? Any comments about that? Yeah, I totally agree with Andy's comments there. The other thing I would say is that uh, for some of the drugs that perhaps have, uh, we think are going to be beneficial for our pediatric patients, there may not be a pediatric formulation available so that uh, for, for our younger patients that can't swallow pills, we're kind of limited for what we can do for, you know, if, if the drug is not available in a liquid format and can't be compounded locally or is not, uh, you know, it doesn't come in a form that can be compounded, that can be a problem too. So there's a issue, there's a lot of that logistic issue, there's the insurance issue that does uh, kind of limit uh, our ability to use some very exciting drugs uh, that are uh, either close to being on market or on market already. Yeah, she goes on to ask, second, how do insurance companies deal with off-label use of drugs in this population? So I think you both sort of answered that. I can also add to it that, you know, most of the time insurance companies will, um, if we have reasonable amount of evidence from the literature or some case reports that a drug is active in a particular person's tumor type, even though there's not an FDA approval for that, they'll usually cover that on on case-by-case basis. She goes on to say, I guess that breaks down to do doctors prescribe uh, based off what insurance companies will cover as opposed to what they believe might be effective, but they know patient families can't afford, and so the answer is no, we really try not to uh, give them a, a big bill, but most insurance companies will cover things that if we have, you know, enough uh, reasonable-looking data or to back it up. She goes on to say, I can't imagine what sort of ethical dilemmas pediatric oncologists face, but I imagine this might be one of them. So she is true. I think you've all expressed that. She goes on to say, I really liked your discussion on repurposing existing drugs with the high-throughput screening. I'm very enthusiastic that this will increase the survival rates for rare cancers in the future. 
So Amanda, thank you very much for those comments. We agree with you. Um, we appreciate them. I, in rereading your email, it looks like you were working on a research project slash speech, so I imagine we're long past the deadline for that, so my apologies <laughs> by the time this is posted and you, if you happen to hear it, it probably won't have helped you out for that project, but hopefully it'll help others out if they had the same question. I, w I would add to that answer that, that not all states, uh, not all state insurance programs are as forgiving of the, uh, of the data that's out there or accepting of the data that's out there. And, and some of these drugs, um, you know, may cost in excess of, of twenty dollars to $60,000 a month. And uh, insurance companies are, are less enthusiastic in, in that realm to, to support them. Yeah, and I think it may be a changing environment as well. There might be some more uh, uh, resistance to that as we move forward in the different changes in the healthcare environment. We'll move on to today's topic. So Robin actually has circulated amongst us co-hosts uh, two different articles that she wanted to present to us for discussion. So I think they're very interesting and they do tie together in, in, a, in, a, in a way. So Robin, take it away. Sure, thanks. The two articles I picked, one, I can, instead of doing kind of very, two heavy, ver very heavy scientific articles, I figured we'd look at one more epidemiologic approach, and then the second is a little bit more of a um, scientific um, approach. The first article that I was going to talk about was the article that was present published in Cancer this year. Um, the first author in that is Malcolm Smith. Um, the title of the article is Declining Childhood and Adolescent Cancer Mortality, um, and it was published out of the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. Of note, there's a couple of those um, uh, names are pretty important mm -hmm. on the co-author list. So Peter Adamson and also Gregory Riemann are on that on that article. So current and um, former chair of Children's Oncology Group. Mm -hmm. And then I don't actually know who Nita Siebel is. And she's uh, she's the associate uh, branch chief, I believe, at CTEP. Right. So there's heavy hitters on this article. And also uh, Sean out to Cruz, DVM, a PhD, mm -hmm. so also contributed basically experts in, in the area of, of pediatric cancer on this article. So basically the premise of the article and sort of the rationale for doing this whole study was to kind of evaluate where we've, how, where we've been and where we've gone and how far we've gone with cancer um, therapies and mortality rates and how we have improved in, in keeping kids cured for cancers over the last several decades. And one of the things that kind of prompted the authors to look at this was because that there's been sort of a plateau in the ability to um, impact mortality over the last several years and whether or not that was due to the lack of new drugs or, or what what uh, diagnostic strategies or whatever, they kind of wanted to look at it in more um, formal fashion. So basically, the authors looked through the SEER uh, registry data, um, and for people who don't aren't familiar with SEER, it's the Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results. Um, it's registry data that includes information from a portion of the U.S. population um, and can give you um, age-adjusted norms for U.S. population. The data that they collected was from approximately 1975 to 2010, and they basically looked at um, mortality trends and survival data in amongst groups of pediatric patients and adolescent patients. The way they decided to break the study down is they broke the patient population up into three age groups, the less than 20-year age group, um, which is sort of your upper adolescent crossing over into adult range, 
your 15 to 19 year age group and your less than 15 year age group, which is the younger population. Um, and the mortality rates were reported as per 100,000 um, proportion of US childhood cancer deaths. They surveyed a variety of cancer types, including um, most of the leukemias, lymphomas, CNS, brain, uh, soft tissue tumors, and even a few um, fairly rare tumors as well. When looking at reporting how they reported their mortality trends, they um, used a joint point regression analysis, which basically is looking at the annual percentage change, which is basically the slope of the line, the change in the slope in the line for mortality from one given year to another given year. And that will be more illust better illustrated on one of the figures in the article. And they actually kind of compared uh, earlier in the half of that chunk of time to later in the half of that chunk of time over across the entire time period that's been looked at. In addition to that, they also looked at deaths averted. So basically comparing the difference between the expected number of deaths that you would have had and then the actual deaths that you had to see if how good we are at um, preventing death from childhood cancer. Basically, their whole kind of general trend was that the rate per 100,000 deaths in mortality has decreased according to the annual percentage change from the year 2000 to the year 2010. The biggest change actually in the the percentage of mortality was within the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and Hodgkin's lymphoma patients that were less than 20. Um, and it was kind of interesting they <coughs> commented on the fact that this was even a larger change than the patients in the 15 to 19 age, year age group, um, which is which is actually good to hear because I think that the cancer community is is had been more concerned with the older patients that we weren't getting as good of a mortality decline in those patients recently. But I think that this shows that, that we have made some progress in those patients. The percent changes, of course, are, are much smaller in the brain tumor patients and, and some of the soft tissue sarcomas. And then basically the less than 15-year age group also has some decline, but not as much as the, the older group populations. When they looked at the mortality, there's a kind of a pie chart in figure one, just kind of lumping together what cancers made up sort of the biggest group of patients. On the less than 15-year-old mortality group, most of the patients that had the biggest change were lumped into the leukemia f um, brain tumors and neuroblastoma. Um, and then on the second pie chart, you can see that the majority of those patients included also the leukemias and brain tumors, but less of the neuroblastomas. And that's probably likely to do to the fact that neuroblastoma incidence is less in that age group. But you can see if you compare the two charts amongst each other. Which our, um, our listeners won't be able to compare. Yeah. So <laughs> oh, if, you, if, we, if, we sh if we compare the two charts against each other, they basically show you that the soft tissue sarcomas actually was went from 6% of the total in the less than 15 year age group and then from the 15 to 19 year age group went to 10%. So that actually increased in the bone the bone tumor deaths also increased in the 15 to 19 year old age group, but the neuroblastoma deaths actually declined. The figure two in this article kind of looks at basically the whole data in, in the first table, but in more of a graphical form, and then also adds in the deaths averted section. Mm -hmm. So basically it's kind of interesting. If you plot the graphs for the deaths per 100,000, it, it's deep, there's a steep decline in that slope. However, it's very interesting because there is a huge plateau where there's basically no decline in mortality from 1998 to 2002. Why do you think that is? There were a couple of theories in the paper. It could just be the fact that there were from 1975 to 1998, there was sort of a very rapid escalation of new cancer treatments. Um, and then 
and then those treatments were developing, but then they got instituted into the protocols during that time. And then basically it took kind of, I think, a couple of years to catch up before they actually had another decline. I mean, what's, so. what's I think, encouraging about this mm -hmm. is that we, we often say, well, we've maxed out on our chemo, right? We're, mm -hmm. We've gotten as, as far as we can get. Uh, and yet these numbers are still going down as recently as up to 2010. So we're obviously still doing yeah. something good. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, um, and clearly you can see that we've been averting death. The next figure actually breaks down that chart that I just described to you into actually leukemias and then all other cancers, which includes solid tumors and CNS. It kind of shows that it, I think that the slope of a line going down in deaths and mortality rate it seems to be kind of heavily weighted amongst the leukemias and lymphomas, obviously, because they are the most common um, childhood malignancies. But in addition to that, there have been fairly significant improvements in the treatment for those cancers as well. So that makes sense. So that yeah, so concept that is not really new. We, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So that kind of proves what we already know. There wasn't really much of a plateau, yeah. though, in that curve. The, maybe a little bit one. Yeah. There seems to be more jaggedy things in the other curves. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think there are. There are, so one interesting thought they, they presented an article for this is that there's that, there is a plateau in that leukemia group there, but that the leukemia community has started to use the newly changed care models in terms of um, the, n the new strategy for treating leukemia that was established in that deep slope in 1975 to 1999 as the standard of care in the second slope. And so it's kind of like your building off of something that was already better. <laughs> so they, they kind of gave um, credit to the, the approach of the, of the leukemia group within COG as, as how they kind of standardized the protocols in, and that sort of improved that. I wonder how much of these are improved yeah. um, supportive care measures and so quality yeah. improvement you know, efforts and hand washing and all that sort of I thing. Actually have, I actually have that as a comment too. Okay. And then the last couple of graphs basically just tell a little bit about, just show um, <laughs> how they related their mortality decline to five-year <coughs> relative survival rates. And in each of them, you can see that um, overall, the five-year um, survival rates have, have improved um, from basically from year to year, um, with actually some, some of the big improvements being in the five to 14-year-old age group, which is a, a good sign. So the good thing about this article is that it does prove that, no, we haven't completely halted and not making any progress anymore, <laughs> and that we are still making progress, um, although it, it is four years, I think, behind because we only have the data up into 2010. So um, we'll have to see. Hopefully that curve does not plateau. I think the other good thing is that this shows that the adolescent young adult population is, is doing better than maybe we we thought, and that's also a good thing. And the the authors contributed that to maybe the recognition by more uh, adult treating physicians that the adolescent young adult population do better in pediatric protocols, and that maybe that kind of cooperative treatment approach has helped the young adult patient population continue to have dramatic mortality decreases. Some of the things that they didn't bring up were you know, the reasons for death. And, and I was thinking, do the patients who died, it, was it purely from disease progression or was it from treatment-related mortality and what was the proportion of each, you know? I don't know. And that was when I was thinking about supportive care and did they die from sepsis early on mostly because, like, we weren't as good with antibiotics and treatment and or... Probably all a combination. You know, it's probably a combination We're getting better in, exactly. in everything we do. Yeah. So they didn't really talk about that. And 
And then, and then this is all upfront, newly diagnosed patients too. So, you know, I think that if we were to be looking at patients that have are relapsed patients, that these curves would not look very good for right. most of the populations. So, it, you know, I think that that would probably looking at that data, if we ever looked at it in that way, um, I think would show us that we still have a lot to do, even though we're seeing this decline, you know, in the newly diagnosed patient population. It should be noted, they say that there's still 1,900 people expected to die each year mm -hmm. from pediatric cancer. I just did a back of the envelope calculation actually on my sc computer screen calculation, so it's not fair. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that still means one patient is dying every four and a half hours. Yeah. So still so. a ways to go. Andy, what do you think about this article? Uh, you know, I agree with all the all the comments uh, stated so far. The the only thing um, uh, where I didn't disagree is that not all adolescent and young adult populations are, are better treated by pediatricians. I think there's a um, a recent paper by uh, John Haran. Um, Bill Woods was a senior author in, in AML patients that show that while the relative risk of relapse was lower in adolescent and young adult patients treated on pediatric studies. The toxicity uh, uh, rate, or the, the treatment-related mortality rate, is almost 25% in those patients. So there may be, as as for higher-risk leukemia or for higher-risk uh, malignancies, where we push the threshold of therapy, spoiled by the ability of younger patients to tolerate that, we may not be able to uh, take that strategy into the AYA population. And and even with advanced supportive care measures, we we tend to have very high um, treatment-related re mortality risk. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Lionel, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think this is a really interesting article, uh, particularly figure three, which uh, breaks it down, uh, as, you'd well as you described really well, uh, between the, the uh, liquid tumors and sort of all the rest. I think it really serves to highlight that um, even, you know, historically, we've always achieved the best survival rates, the best cure rates with the liquid tumors, and we continue to see the best advances in liquid tumors, according to this uh, graph, you know, the, the slope of the curve uh, for that green curve, for the liquid tumor curve, is uh, a little bit steeper than the slope for the, for the blue curve, which is the rest of the tumors. It would have been nice to see a breakdown between um, the CNS tumors and the other soft tissue tumors, because this would sort of help us to uh, help to guide us to say, you know, wh where is the area where we're lacking and that we need to focus, uh, you know, maybe... Uh, more energy in, or in, in, in order to uh, impact overall, you know, to, to achieve this last 17% or so of, of, uh, of death overall uh, on all comers. Where, where do we need to sort of concentrate our efforts? Obviously in relapse leukemia, but my suspicion based on the pie charts is that, and, and you can tell where I'm coming from because I'm a CNS guy, but the, the CNS tumors is, is one big chunk of the pie that we have to uh, attack, obviously. The other comment that I have is uh, regarding this, uh, the, the plateau and then the, the takeoff again on the decrease. I, I'm wondering if, you know, maybe this is a little bit too much padding on, padding on back, but maybe I'm wondering if we can um, attribute any of that improvement that, or, or getting away from the plateau to the new generation of therapy that is sort of coinciding with the time period in terms of becoming more incorporated into um, uh, our daily chemotherapy use, you know, things like the rituximabs and the um, verinostats that we talked about just a little bit earlier, uh, and other imatinib, of course, and other uh, targeted therapies that are now part of our, our almost everyday armamentarium. Uh, maybe that is uh, also responsible for the 
um, taking off or, or uh, improvement or continued improvements in, in survival too. Yeah, maybe. It's, I don't know that we'll ever know exactly what we can ascribe this to, but as long as we see the curve continuing to fall, we can take comfort in that fact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wonder if there's going to be another plateau if you would do this and then another decline, because it almost seems like even the information data, data gathering systems, you know, We're with technology yeah. are, are different, and then it takes actually the physicians and the investigators time to catch up to the data gathering methods before we figure out how to incorporate them into, into the, actually the therapy. So I wonder if that's that, that lag is sometimes. Yeah, it could be. But I think part of the message is that uh, we still got a ways to go. Uh, one of the things we didn't really talk about is even those patients who are cured, they have a lot of side effects and, you know, long, short-term and long-term. And so we still need novel therapies to cure the incurable cancers and to reduce side effects on those who we are successful with. So kind of brings us to our next Topic, you know, real hot topic in the field over the last year has been CAR T-cells or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells or other kinds of cells, NK cells, MSC. There's lots of different cells that people are trying to direct in, in, in the whole area of cellular therapy, direct toward tumors. And there's been some really high-profile articles and newspaper articles and so forth highlighting some of the interesting case reports of the use of these cells. So um, Robin was also going to present a, a study about a new type of uh, CAR T-cell um, maybe you give just a brief background on what CAR T-cells are and then talk about this paper. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so I think this ties in nicely because I think as we've sort of been reaching um, new heights in, in the mortality and trying to decrease that and also improve quality of life for the patients, which the first article kind of talked about, um, this, this paper highlights um, CAR T-cell therapy, which is which stands for, well, actually, let me just give you the article of the paper first. So the title of the paper is um, Preclinical Targeting of Human Acute Myeloid Leukemia and Myeloablation Using Chimeric Antigen Receptor Modified T-Cells. The um, authors listed are Sar Gill, Sarah Tassan, Marco Ruella, Olga Shestova, Young Lee, David Porter, Martin Carroll, Gwen, Danette Desnoyers. John Scholler, Stephen Grapp, um, Carl June, and uh, Michael Kalis. And this um, paper was from the Abrams Menace, uh, Cancer Center. We should mention, <coughs> although it's in blood and was published in April, so volume 123, number 15, April 2014, we actually don't have the citation for the first article because it yeah. was just released online this month or in March. Yeah. So there's no, it is from cancer, but we don't have any volume or um, issue number for our for our audience mm -hmm. if they want to look it up. So we apologize for that. But so yeah, so really big hot topic in 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 therapy now and novel therapeutics for um, specifically leukemias, but I think it could probably be elaborated to other tumors at some point. Is CAR T cell therapy, which CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor. Uh, this is basically a method of, of of using an alternative method that's not chemotherapy to be able to um, jumpstart the immune system and allow your immune system, which primarily are T cells, to recognize tumor cells um, such as leukemia cells and kill those cells. One of the, the, the interesting things about this is that, you know, uh, chemotherapy agents typically will, will kill, um, nonspecific kill, um, basically anything that's rapidly dividing. And these engineered T cells will be able to recognize specific foreign leukemia cells or any other tumor cell you target it to. Um, and be able to recognize it and actually prompt your immune system to kill the cell. Of course, the target usually isn't completely specific. Right. So We try to make it as specific <laughs> as possible, which actually is something that we'll talk about in the article, yeah. too. 
So these are extracellular single-chain variable fragments that are linked to a T-cell signaling domain. Um, and then the signaling domain is actually then linked to uh, another chain. Um, typically, in this article, they describe using the CD3 zeta chain um, in one or more co-stimulatory um, domains. And so basically, the article is looking at a specific type of engineered uh, CAR T-cell called the CD123 um, CART. There has been a lot of data coming out from CHOP looking at CAR T-cells using the CD19 construct, and this is sort of, uh, they kind of use that as a baseline and then elaborated off of that. One of the interesting things about CD123 itself is that it's actually part of the IL-3 receptor. Um, it, it's the alpha subunit, uh, alpha subunit portion of the receptor. And so the reason why I think the, the authors thought that this was interesting to look at is because that receptor is located on acute myeloleukemia blasts um, in fairly large uh, um, numbers, and so that they figured it would be a good target for um, targeting the T-cells too. They first used T-cells um, that were gathered from patients, and they basically transduce those using a lentiviral vector plasmid um, in order to um, engineer a T-cell to express this single-chain variable fragment that's going to um, be specific for the CD123. They also then um, used both cell lines and primary AML cells to conduct their experiments. The AML cell line they used was the MOM4 cell line, which is an M5 AML cell line for monocytic leukemia. And they tagged these cell lines and um, primary patient samples with a um, GFP luciferase lentiviral construct in order to be able to um, see leukemia burden using bioilluminescence later on in the study. They also used um, flow cytometry to detect surface expression of CD123 to both um, see the expression of the CD123 cells once they, they are transduced into the C cells and also to see um, the rate of killing um, once if they can detect a cell to the, the cells after they are infused into the, the mice. In the article, they first looked to see what CD123 expression and kind of how much that was expressed, because if you don't have an expression of CD123 in your cells, then you can't target it. So that was the very first experiment they did was to look to see if it was a suitable target. And basically, that's uh, shown in figure 1A, where they um, looked at the primary patient AML samples that that figure is showing. It's looking at the expression of CD123, CD33, and CD34. Um, all which um, can be seen on AML cells. And you can see the, there are some blue triangles on the left-hand side of that graph showing that there is a large percent positive um, population of cells that highly express CD123 in the AML cells that they, sh they showed. So at least they're showing that the, the, the um, and actually that was much higher than CD33 um, or CD34. Um, so the second thing that they looked at after they showed that there was expression of CD123, their target um, on the cells, was to um, look at the effector function of eight different constructs that they created in their lab and then picked the one that was the most potent and also gave them the highest cytokine or immune uh, immune response. How did um, each of those eight differ from one another? I don't want to get I too much into the specifics, but... So it's basically how the affinity of the... So it was a binding site yeah, differences. Okay. Right. Almost like if you As were engineering a... As or transduction domain or something, yeah. Anyway, so the construct they picked um, just happened to be construct number 2072, and I don't have the supplemental article, but they list kind of the... 
the other ones in, in the supplemental figure number three, if anyone Here's a, I'm gonna article. I'm going to insert an editorial yeah. comment here. So. You know, the world has gone to all these supplemental data because, <laughs> you know, and I absolutely hate supplemental data because you download an article and it doesn't yeah. show up with it. And then you got to go through the link and find it again. And nowadays, everything's online. In fact, you yeah. know, our society's major journal, Pediatric Blood and Cancer, yeah. is all online, not even print. The world is full of infinite amounts, well, maybe not quite, <laughs> of silicon, but, um, you know, w there's no need for supplemental data. Put it all in the article. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually kind of disappointed. I tried to pull up all of the supplemental articles and my computer wouldn't allow me to open yeah. so. Th one of the important features of their construct that they chose was its ability to produce a variety of effector uh, release of cytokines and chemokines because that's showing that you're having an active immune response with that construct. They looked at six different... Um, stimulatory responses to MYP1A alpha, MYP1-beta, GMCSF, interferon gamma, TNF-alpha, and IL-2. And you can see there's a, a black line illustrating CART-123, and that's comparing it to CART-19, which is the kind of the precursor um, CART T-cell antibody that's been used previously in other ALL studies. Um, and you can see there's a, a, a massive amount of um, immunogenicity that's um, provided by the CAR-123 cells as compared to the CAR-19 cells. Well, that cells. brings up, what's the, so the difference, you know, most of the studies to date, or at least that I've seen published, are CAR-19, which mm -hmm. is a B-cell mm -hmm. antigen, and mainly on, um, you know, ALL, mm -hmm. lymphoblastic leukemia cells. This is what they're, de what they're developing here is something against myeloid cells, mm -hmm. not lymphoid cells. So they're showing, I think, that you get pretty good, pretty good responses compared, but you wouldn't, are these against, uh, these are against CD123 targets, so you wouldn't expect mm -hmm. the CART-19 to do much in this assay. That's really the negative control, it seems like, here. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Then, basically, they expanded all of that to see whether or not this is actually effective in decreasing leukemia burden in, in a mouse, mouse model. Figure number 3A in the article shows the, the experimental... Um, schema, and it basically shows how they took xenograft mouse model of um, NSG mice and uh, sublethally irradiated them. Uh, right, so NSG, not skid gamma, which don't have T cells, B cells, or NK cells that are good hosts for a, a leukemic xenograft. Basically don't have, an immune, yeah. don't have any immune system or cells there. So they sublethally irradiated them and then injected them with um, initially with the MOM14 AML cell line on day zero of the experiment. And then they use bioluminescence, um, which is basically just a way to look at leukemia burden in the uh, mice. And so basically they looked at that on day six and then on day seven of the experiment, they introduced via a tail vein injection, the CART-123 T cells that should basically um, be active and kill the leukemia that they injected a couple of days prior. Um, and then relooked by illuminescence um, visually at leukemia burden um, at 14 days. As compared to a saline control, where only saline was injected into the mice, the CART T cell uh, 123 um, model, as compared to the CART 19, which Dr. Kripe had just mentioned, was sort of the internal control for this experiment. You can see there's pretty much a dramatic decline in leukemia burden in all of the mice that were um, treated in both day 14 and day 22. I barely can see any leukemia in the mice by day 14 and pretty much none by day 21 in the CART-123 T cells. Um, so it's pretty visually pretty dramatic. 
Well, it, the survival curve looks so impressive too. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then the survival curve also shows that there's approximately eighty eighty percent survival with a uh, that's statistically significant. Um, and the patients treat it with the CART-123 versus with the CART-19 or with no T-cells alone. So this is basically just showing that the construct that they created does work and it is able to um, kill the AML cells that were injected into the mice. However, you know, everything that works in a cell line doesn't always work in the body. <laughs> and so, um, you know, they the authors recognized this and then had to um, expand this um, theory into using primary patient samples, and primarily because um, AML and all of leukemia, I think, in general, is have, as we have learned through the years, is, is very heterogeneous, so it's not just one clonal leukemia population. There's actually many different um, populations of, of AML cells in that, in that group, and so um, they had to prove that this would also work in, in those in, in, in a primary patient sample. So they basically did uh, almost the same experiment, looked at the, the patients there. The only difference is that uh, although there is a, a decrease in the, the in the percent survival, there's actually not as much as a decrease in the percent survival. It's not as dramatic, I guess I should say, as it is in the AML cell line. You have an 80% survival rate in the cell line, but you only have a 40% survival rate in the primary sample. Do they have any thoughts yeah. about why that is the case? Did they lose the CD123 expression? That, they did not. They were they described them as CD one twenty three positive still, but they had disease progression. So I I'm not exactly sure. Right. So they didn't lose it by immune it. escape, which yeah. is one of the one of so. the uh, common mm -hmm. mechanisms for tumors to or cancers to mm -hmm. escape any kind of targeted therapy, including CAR T cells, is you yeah. know antigen escape where you downregulate expression of the target. The the only one thing they also attributed to since you brought that up was something called cytokine release syndrome which is basically a almost like a cytokine storm where um, patients and the mice, you know, can get very sick just from the impact of a flood of cytokines coming out all at once from the T-cell response and the immune response. And so um, I think the reason why I bring that up is because with the development of this type of therapy, that's something that needs to be um, really worked on and looked at before patients are exposed to these um, because definitely in the CD19 ALL models, that's been something that's been seen in the majority, in the and actually a majority of patients that have been treated. Right, so, so. been very effective, <laughs> but also toxic, at least exactly. initially. Right. So. Andy, this is a, sort of up your alley. What are your thoughts? I, uh, you know, I, I, I thought this paper was, uh, was very interesting, in, in, um, especially following the CAR-19 uh, studies, uh, primarily because I, I think it demonstrates how difficult this uh, technology is going to be to implement across uh, malignancies. The you know, in the in the discussion, they talk about uh, using uh, CAR one twenty three not as a um, uh, not as a definitive therapy, but as a, a pre transplant therapy because it, it is likely to be myeloablative. And then um, you run into the question of uh, how do you turn off the uh, CAR one twenty three T cells uh, so that you can salvage the graft. So I think it it certainly shows the potential in terms of efficacy. But also the challenges in implementing that, and that uh, you know the, the investigators in this uh, trial they chose the the most active uh, um, uh, antigens or the most atoms or the most active uh, CAR T cells, and and perhaps that may not be the best strategy for AML because it was so effective in in ablating the uh, the normal uh, hematopoiesis, the normal marrow. 
and then they also discussed the possibility of, of a uh, of a, essentially an off switch. So once you uh, once you ablate the marrow, once you ablate the uh, hopefully the leukemia, uh, how do you turn off those T cells so that you can you can salvage the patient with a with a new graft? So it's a it's a very complex question. It's not, uh, uh, but the efficacy um, is uh, looks outstanding. Yeah, the whole field, I mean, is exploding and, you know, a hot topic, obviously, but there are, and, and it getting a lot of press, as I, as I said, but they, they, um, there are issues and not just antigen escape, but other, and, and cytokine storms and toxicities. I know that from talking to other investigators who are developing these for solid tumors, you know, the, the solid tumor microenvironment is very immunosuppressive, and so getting enough of these T cells into the environment and having them be able to be active, of, of course, checkpoint inhibitors and other things are also hot topics to help the immune system be able to work. Uh, so it's, it's a rapidly evolving field. Lionel, you think we'll be able to use these kinds of cells for brain tumors someday? Um, oh, I, I mean, definitely. I think that uh, they're, they're, uh, I mean, I know of several groups, especially at Duke and in Florida, that are hot on uh, looking for the correct antigens to couple with these CAR T uh, cells in the case of uh, specific um, um, brain tumors. The, the only other, um, you know, word of, I guess, caution for these preclinical um, types of experiments that, that I'll just inject into the conversation, uh, and I don't have an answer for this, is is that um, because of the way that uh, these models are done, uh, you know, you brought up that the uh, that the types of mice that were used for these studies were NSG mice, so they're uh, heavily immunosuppressed mice uh, to begin with. They don't have uh, T cells or NK cells. That obviously is not the case in most of our patients. So I, I don't know the answer to that. How how best to um, in a preclinical setting demonstrate efficacy or to uh, work through some of the problems that Andy brought up in a in a model where we can replicate the situation where there is an active immune system. But um, that's just another point that uh, we need to keep in mind when we're looking at these preclinical studies. Yeah, it's a great point, and maybe the answer is you have to do things in all murine settings, mouse T cells and mouse genes, et cetera, so there's no species differences, but then is that sufficient preclinical data to test a, a human product that you want to use in human patients? Probably not. Yeah, I think just one last point that they didn't bring up that was talked about um, from a few speakers I've heard is that they don't really mention sort of T-cell test expansion, and so I've heard from other investigators that they use T-cells that were harvested from other healthy patients, but the T-cells are going to be coming from the patients and then being reinfused from the patients after they have their therapy. And I've heard that not all patients' T-cells were expanded enough in order to actually generate the, the engineer construct. So unfortunately, it may not be available for all patients that we would consider for this type of therapy because of that. At the moment, most of them do have to be autologous because they express, you yeah. know, class one and but uh, I know some investigators are working on excising the the MHC genes out of cells with CRISPR technology or other technologies that allow you to delete genes from cells. So, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal is to make an off-the-shelf product that, yeah, it's from someone else, but it will work and not get rejected in, in everybody. So I think a lot of that is just a matter of technology and, you know, the technology being advancing over the next few years. Great. Thank you, Robin, uh, for, for presenting these papers, and thank you guys for being here. And thanks to Victor Aguilar, our sound engineer today. To our listening audience, as usual, we are happy to read your emails during a future podcast, but it may be very far in the future, as I've demonstrated today. Uh, we'll discuss uh, your comments and questions, and please send us a note at, to twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter occasionally when I send out a tweet about a new episode at Twippo Podcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification 
when we post new episodes using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. I think we finally got our iTunes link uh, fixed, so most of the episodes are now back on iTunes. Uh, there's two different iTunes link feeds on there, so it can be a little confusing, but hopefully you can find the right ones. Uh, thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, Jenny Song, our director of communications, and Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.